The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Scripture teaches that whenever we sin, we're out of fellowship. We grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is our our guide. He's our teacher. He is the one who helps us to understand the deep things of God. He is the one who stores them in our soul and who recalls them to our mind for times of application. So we always need to make sure we're in fellowship for the teaching of the Word and as much of the time as possible. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer so that if you need to use 1 John 1, 9, to get right with the Lord, you have the opportunity to do so, and then also to focus our thinking and to be prepared to take in the Word of God this morning. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you for the freedom that we have to do so in this nation. Father, we pray that during this time of war against terrorism, that you would give our national leadership wisdom in the conduct of this war, and that you would give the people in the nation a resolve and steadfastness that as long as it takes, we will carry out this mission, and that we will stand behind our leaders in the process. Father, we continue to pray for the safety and security of this nation, that only through your protection do we have safety and security, and it is not due to who we are, what we've done. It's not due to our own technology. It is not due due to our own righteousness, but it is due solely to your plans, your purposes, and your provision. Father, now as we study your word, open our eyes to understand how these things relate to our own thinking. May we be challenged to understand the things before us, and that they might transform our thinking, renew our motivation, and challenge us with the high calling that we have received with our salvation. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. This is one of those mornings where you're going to need to fasten your seatbelts because I'm going to uh, go through some material that I have not covered here. I've taught it three or four times when I've been away on conferences this last year and uh, have not yet had the opportunity to cover it here. I've been waiting for this opportunity. So uh, 
It's some new material. We haven't gone through some of this in the same way, so it's going to be a challenge for some of you to keep up, I think, and a challenge for me to cover it in an hour. Open your Bibles to 1 John 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 14. 1 John 2.14, we see that verses 12-14 through 14 summarizes the Christian life, addressing three different stages of growth. Addressing three different stages of growth, and those stages are defined as the mature stage as fathers, the intermediate stage or adolescent believer as young men, and the immature believers as children. Now, in verse 13, fathers are addressed, and again in verse 14, with an identical phrase. And that phrase is, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. Fathers know God. We saw last time and in our study previously in 1 John 2 that knowledge of God is evidenced by keeping commandments. That further is linked in John's writings to love for God. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so what we see here is this entire concept of loving God, what we define in terms of the upper tier of mature spiritual skills, we have the love triplex. There are three areas there that we've defined again and again. Personal love for God the Father, impersonal or unconditional love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. That has been mastered by the fathers. They have mastered those spiritual skills, and so little need be said to them. They are not going to fall prey to the false teaching that is... Uh, plaguing the congregation that the Apostle John is addressing because they have learned to love God, to know God. They are keeping His commandments. They are occupied with Christ, and they are moving on. There is not a problem there. The problem addresses the adolescent believer and the immature believer, the young believer. And the adolescent believer is addressed more fully in verse 14. In verse 13, all that is said of the Adolescent believer, the young men, is that they have overcome the evil one. This is further expanded in verse 14. It refers to spiritual skills that they have already mastered. And those spiritual skills that they have already mastered involve three. First of all, grace orientation. Secondly, doctrinal orientation. And then in terms of our overhead personal sense of eternal destiny. And we have seen that it is this skill to begin to think in life's terms today in light of eternity, to make decisions in light of eternity, to realize that we are the decisions we make today determine who and what we will be for all eternity is the essence of moving from immaturity to maturity, just as in uh, the fact that you look at your teenage daughters or you look back to when you were a teenager you realize that you made decisions and lived every day in light of its immediate effect, immediate gratification, and that the ability to postpone gratification is often the sign of maturity. And it is somewhere between uh, the age of 14 or 15 and mid-20s 
that people begin to pass through those stages of maturity where they anticipate adulthood and make and postpone gratifications and go through difficult times or hardship or endure difficulty uh, and postpone gratification for future rewards in life. And that is a sign of growing up. So these young men have mastered that. Now, the, re- the way I got this out of the Scripture we covered last time, but John says to these young men, I have written to you, first of all, because you are strong. And we went through a study of the Greek word there, eskuros, and showed that, that strength is related to recognizing that it is not our strength or power, but God's strength and power, and it's eskuros is related to um, the Greek word dunamis. Dunamis is God's power, and God, in Second in Corinthians chapter 12, Paul learned the lesson that It is in our weakness that God's power is made manifest, that His grace is sufficient for for me. And so our strength is not our strength, as Ephesians 6.10 makes clear. It is the power of His strength. And there we have that same word, iskuros, linked with dunamis. Linked with dunamis, and that is related to understanding that God has provided everything for us, and that is part of grace orientation, that grace means that it's not up to me, it's up to God. It's not based on who I am, what I have done. It's based on God's provision at the cross where he gave us everything we need for salvation and everything we need for the advance in the spiritual life. What we have to do is study the Word. We have to appropriate the promises of God's Word. We have to learn the procedures and plan of God, and we have to begin to apply them. Well, the to get to adolescence... We have to master grace orientation so that it dominates our thinking and dominates the way we interact with the problems in life and people around us. Then the second thing that John says in this verse is that you are, not only are you strong, but the Word of God abides in you. This is doctrinal orientation. Colossians 3.16, we are to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within us. And we studied that last time, and we saw that Colossians 3.16 is parallel to Ephesians 5.18, that the consequences that flow from letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within you in Colossians 3.16 are the same consequences, the same results in Ephesians 5.19 and following. In Ephesians 5.19 and following, we're told to be uh, thankful to God for all things, to uh, uh, sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then it goes on to outline the believer's responsibility in marriage and family. And all of that is the consequence of the being filled by means of the Holy Spirit. That's a corrected translation. We're not filled with the Spirit in the sense of content. That would be expressed in the Greek by a genitive of content. It is not a genitive there. It is a dative of pneuma. And dative implies means. It's instrumentality. And we are filled by means of the Spirit. But what does He fill us with? He fills us with the Word of Christ. That's the doctrine mentioned in Colossians 3.16. And so you have two things. You have a mastery of the filling of the Holy Spirit, plus learning, assimilating Bible doctrine and applying it in life is what produces doctrinal orientation. That has been mastered by the adolescent believer. And now we're at this third phrase. This third phrase I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome 
the evil one. Now, this is a crucial statement, and in order to understand it, we have to take some time to investigate the meaning of the verb here, which is the hermeneutical key, the interpretive key that unlocks the meaning of this phrase. It is um, uh, somewhat tempting to say, well, this is all this means and all this suggests is that they are saved. That because in John 16:33 Jesus says that that uh, He had overcome the world, and because First uh, John 5:4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world, that overcoming the evil one is simply a reference to salvation. However, it implies much more than that, and that is indicated by a word study of the verb here, nikao. The Greek verb here is nikao, N-I-K-A-O. The noun is nike, also became the term for the goddess of victory, and uh, that's on your tennis shoes if you buy that brand. Uh, nikao is the verb, and it means to have victory. It means to overcome. It means to conquer, and it means to prevail. All of those meanings are found. It is an athletic term and a military term for having victory or prevailing over an enemy, winning in a race, winning in the uh, challenges of the various Olympic uh, athletic events. It is a second-person plural perfect active indicative, and the perfect tense indicates a completed act in the past focusing on its completion. At this point, it's an extensive rather than an intensive perfect, and it is focusing on the fact that in the past they have reached this level of victory, this level of victory over specifically defined here in terms of overcoming, having victory over the evil one. And since uh, there is always a struggle in spiritual warfare throughout the Christian life until the day we die, we must not understand this in terms of having reached some, some uh, plateau in spiritual life where we're no longer involved in uh, uh, spiritual warfare, but specifically in terms of o- overcoming the evil one. And later on in uh, the gospel, I mean, in the epistle of John, in 1 John 5, it mentions the fact that it is Satan who is the one who is continuously trying to uh, distract the believer, tear down the believer. And so the, the adolescent believer has reached a stage where those elementary distractions are no longer the issue. And this is important. See, for, for the baby believer, the issue is priority. The issue is getting to church. The issue is getting into Bible class. The issue is studying the Scripture. The issue is coming to grips with the fact that doctrine is to be the number one priority in the life of the believer and that even though there are many wonderful things that we can be involved in in life, and even though there are many legitimate things that we need to be involved in, even though we have many other responsibilities, if we're not engaged in making doctrine the number one priority in terms of learning, assimilating, and applying doctrine, then everything else is, uh, everything else is worthless. Doctrine has to be number one. And so Satan is involved in distracting the believer from making doctrine number one. So before we go any further, we need to break it down into a number of points 
in order to look at the importance of victory in the life of the believer. Point number one. Victory for the believer is based first and foremost on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is the first victory. There are many victories, and this is one of the problems in understanding the meaning of Nikao in the Scriptures, is that there are those who want to make this uh, refer to one complete victory, make it an absolute uh, status rather than one that is, uh, deals with successive victories in the spiritual life. And if you take that view, then you end up with certain problems. And those problems are related to what we've studied many times in terms of lordship salvation, because that is typically a position taken by those who end up advocating either a soft or hard lordship position, and it classifies all Christians under one category. They're either all overcomers or they're not, because in their view, an overcomer is simply someone who is saved. And yet I would suggest that that is a oversimplified view of the passage and why we will deal with some of the technical issues that we have to deal with this morning. And I'm telling you, some of you are going to get your brains fried, so just get ready. It starts off, victory for the believers based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. In John 16:33, the night before he went to the cross, Jesus said, These things, and that's the doctrine he taught during the upper room discourse, These things I have spoken to you, that in me, that is, by abiding in me, you may have peace. In the world that is in the cosmic system, we have seen that translation. We're going to get into it in detail starting probably next week where we come to the command in verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. We are going to start a a detailed study of what the cosmic system is involved in and what cosmic thinking is characterized by, especially in this day and age, in which time we're going to jump into another study of... um, postmodernism and postmodern thought and how it infects the believer and infects the church. So Jesus says in the world, in the cosmic system, you have tribulation. There's always going to be conflict for the believer living in the devil's world because the cosmic system is the devil's system. And we will always have tribulation, small t. That means adversity, difficulty, struggle, and suffering. But take courage, he says, I have overcome. Jesus overcame the world. That means he conquered the cosmic system. And even though he uses a past tense there, it is a proleptic, just a new word for you to expand your vocabulary this morning. See if anybody's out there think proleptic is a word that's used in the past but refers but to a future event that is so certain. It's referred to as past tense. So it's also referred to as a futuristic past tense, which means that the events in the future, but it's so certain it's referred to in the past. The night before he went to the cross, he knew he would have victory over sin and over the cosmic system the next day. He had, in fact, demonstrated uh, victory over the cosmic system throughout his entire life in ministry because of the impeccability of Jesus, of his life and the impeccability that he knew no sin, so that the next day he who knew no sin would be made sin for us. First point, that's the first victory. When you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you have your first victory. But that's not the last victory, and that's not the only victory. Point number two, victory is often expressed in relationship to the cosmic system, which is Satan's classroom for inculcating his values, his ideals, his priorities into both believer 
an unbeliever. Believers can be dominated by cosmic thinking. And that's exactly the problem that John is going to address because you see, verse 14 is the positive expression to the fact that these adolescent believers have advanced to a point where they have had a victory. They have conquered Satan's attempt to distract them from the priority of doctrine as they have grown to spiritual adolescence. But then he has to warn them because they're still at the stage of spiritual adolescence. They are still infected with a certain degree of cosmic thinking. We all are infected by human viewpoint values, human viewpoint thinking, until the day we go to be with the Lord. But... As we learn doctrine, doctrine replaces human viewpoint in the soul. And with each successive stage of development, we have another victory. So, victory is often expressed in relationship to the cosmic system. We'll see this again and again in a number of verses. Point number three. Victory is not an absolute. Um, but is the, there's a typo there, is the believer's victory in stages. It comes in stages. Stage one occurs at the cross, and then there are successive stages with each development. Victory is not an, an absolute, but is the believer's in successive stages. We see this reference to the beginning point in 1 John 5, 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Notice in that passage... Overcoming is related to the cosmic system. For whatever is born of God, and that references regeneration. That is the starting point. That provides the foundation for overcoming the cosmic system. See, the unbeliever has no choice but to think like an unbeliever. The unbeliever is dominated by a sin nature. He's still enslaved to the sin nature. He still thinks human viewpoint, and everything he thinks is human viewpoint. Even though there are aspects of his thought that may be parallel to doctrine, what we call establishment truth, because the unbeliever lives in God's creation, he has to live on the basis of a certain amount of truth, otherwise nothing would work. And that's, the, uh, that's always the inconsistency in unbelievers' thinking, is they can't live consistently with their own presuppositions that life is just the product of chance plus time, because they can't live as if everything is purely random and purely chaos. So they never can live consistent with that. So there are always certain elements within their thinking that are uh, similar to truth, but they are encapsulated within an entire system that is built on a false foundation and is therefore false. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. That's the starting point. That's our... Our potential is established at the cross so that having accomplished that first victory, we can have subsequent victory. And this is the victory, John goes on to say, that has overcome the world, our faith. And this is not simply the subjective sense of pistis. Now, this is where we have to understand something. Faith here, every time we read faith, the um, sort of the knee-jerk response is to define faith in a subjective sense, that faith is merely the act of trusting. But see, we don't, even, we don't, we don't talk about it just that way, even in our own thought. We often talk about, about faith in an in a, in a, in a objective sense, and that relates to not just trusting, but what is trusted. The object 
of faith, which is doctrine. We ask somebody, well, what faith are you? We might say, well, they are uh, of the Presbyterian faith, or they are Methodist faith, or they are the Episcopal faith. Whatever it might be, we're talking about a doctrinal system. So when John says in verse 5 that this is what has overcome the world, our faith, it is our doctrine that has overcome the world, starting with the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then in verse 5, And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So that is the starting point. Belief in the deity of Christ. This is not a belief, simply a belief that Jesus is descended from God, but as we have seen again and again and again, in Hebrew idiom, the term son of does not indicate necessarily descent, but it indicates a characteristic or character quality. For example, in the Old Testament, somebody might be called an SOB. That's a son of Belial. I just want to see if anybody was awake this morning. And that did not mean that their daddy was Belial, but that they were characterized by the same characteristics as Belial. They'd be called the son of a fool. That doesn't mean their daddy was a fool, but that they were a fool. They were characterized by foolishness. They might be called the son of a murderer. That doesn't mean that that their father was a murderer, but that they are a murderer. So when you come to the New Testament and Jesus is called the Son of God, that doesn't mean that his daddy is God and he is therefore a descendant of God, but it means that he is full, undiminished deity. And under the doctrine of the hypostatic union at the Incarnation, the full, undiminished deity of the second person of the Trinity was united forever with true humanity so that Jesus is now... Uh, the God-man, and because he was true humanity, he could go to the cross and die as our substitute and pay the penalty for our sins. So we're told in 1 John 5, 4 and 5, that the foundation for our victory is the work of Christ on the cross. But even though we are saved, and even though we are no longer enslaved to sin... We are still in the devil's world, and we are still the object of satanic attack. Satan's modus operandi towards the unbeliever is to deceive the unbeliever in relationship to the gospel. But his M.O. toward the believer is to deceive the believer in terms of the priority of the spiritual life, the priority of doctrine, and the priority of spiritual growth. And this is done through distraction and through the false thinking systems that dominate the world. People become entranced with all kinds of human viewpoint thought systems. One of the biggest thought systems that we have studied in the past in our study on judges is psychology. Secular psychology is, in fact, even the very name indicates that it is in competition with the Word of God. Psychology, from the Greek word psukos and logos, means to study the soul. And psychology claims to have authority to address the issues of the soul simply because it thinks that it has developed various theories of human behavior on the basis of empirical studies. But the Scripture claims to be the exclusive and sole authority on the soul, what the problems are and what the solutions are, so that every single system, every single model, every system of psychology is a competing Religion to Christianity, and we have studied that that even the American, excuse me, even the uh, Christian Psychiatric Association doesn't know what 
so-called Christian psychiatry is. Uh, I have gone through this in detail, and if you uh, didn't hear the study, you need to go back and get the tapes because that is very important. We live in a psychologized society. So the terminology, thought forms of 20, 21st century Amer- America, even in the church, his vocabulary, his thinking has been affected by this form of cosmic thinking. And that is deceptive to the believer and is a distraction in the spiritual life. Some verses on this, Second Corinthians 4.4. 4 in whose case the God of this age, literally in the Greek, uh, Ionos, not Cosmos, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not, might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan blinds the minds of the unbelieving. Notice he blinds their thinking, their minds. And so he uses thought forms in order to blind people. And whether they are sophisticated or unsophisticated thought forms, people use rationalizations to avoid the reality of God's work. Furthermore, Satan uses his own false ministers. For example, in 2 Corinthians 11:13 through 15, we read, For such men, referring to these false teachers that Paul was dealing with at this time, such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He disguises himself as that which is beautiful, that which is attractive, that which is winsome, that which is rational and seems like a good solution. Verse 15, Therefore it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. So we see that Satan is, is about the process of distracting and deceiving unbelievers and believers. Victory begins at the cross, but, verse point number five, rather, there are levels of victory that advance beyond the initial victory of salvation. Now, salvation is a grace operation. You need to get this. Salvation is a grace operation. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. It is not by works of righteousness, but according to His mercy, He saved us. So the result of salvation, when we put our faith alone in Christ alone, the result is our destiny is heaven and not hell. John 3:18. there is no condemnation to those who are, excuse me, he who believes on Him is not condemned. But the one who believeth not is condemned already. That's talking about eternal condemnation. Heaven is not a reward. Heaven is a gift. It's grace. Grace is a gift. That's the important point here. But rewards, crowns, are for what we do, how we grow, the capacity developed in this life. Rewards are not gifts. By definition, a reward is something given extra for what we have done. So the initial victory is grace. And that relates to salvation, but beyond that, you have the issue of rewards and the concept of overcoming. This is why we go back to the initial diagram that the young men have a personal sense of their eternal destiny. They have awakened to the reality of rewards. They have awakened to the reality of rewards, so they are living their life today not on the basis of gratification in time, 
but rewards in eternity. That's the eternal destiny. And our destiny as believers in the church and the bride of Christ is to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. But as we're going to see, not all believers are going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ because some never reach this stage or they fail at this stage. And so they never overcome. They don't receive any rewards. In fact, they lose rewards and they do not achieve their eternal destiny. So this is the crucial stage for the adolescent believer. And frankly, in my observation, this is where most believers fail is because they never get to the point of understanding this level of motivation. Your motivation changes at this point. Motivation too often in the early stages of spiritual life, because we're infants, is just to grow, to find out uh, answers to questions, to learn basic doctrines, just to, to get past the adversity, trials, tribulations, whatever we're facing. But once we get to spiritual adolescence, all of a sudden the issues, we, we've achieved the level of stability in life, and the issues change. And now the issues aren't just handling problems. The issues have to do with our eternal destiny. Are we going to make it to maturity? And remember, you don't want an immature president. You want a mature president. You do not want babies in Congress. That's why our Constitution has a certain physical age limit for holding federal office. It's because you want somebody who supposedly has reached a level of maturity. And postpone gratification. Now, we all know that doesn't always happen, but, but that's the hope. That's the standard. We want somebody who has a level of, of, of maturity in leadership. And that's the issue, is that if we're going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ, and as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 1, do you not know that we're going to judge the angels? We can't be in a position of, of judgment we can't be in position of ruling and reigning responsibilities if we haven't achieved the capacity to do that, if we haven't reached a level of maturity. So this is the crucial stage to move through adolescence. And this relates to different levels of victory. And if we do a study of nikao, we will uncover the fact that this word relates to the doctrine of rewards. The doctrine of rewards. So let's just review under point five, which says there are levels of victory that advance beyond the initial stages of there are levels of victory that advance beyond the initial victory of salvation. So let's see how this word's used in Revelation two and three. Revelation two and three give us the seven letters from Jesus Christ to seven different churches. A lot of things we can say about that whole passage, but they reflect seven different types of churches that will exist during the church age. And at each one, there's a, at the end of each one, there is a statement of reward and praise. And we're going to go through this because each of these use the word nikao, overcoming. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, this is not talking about salvation. This is a reward. Salvation is a free gift. This is a reward. The overcomer is not the person who simply believes, but this is the one who perseveres and endures in the spiritual life to maturity. And the mature believer is going to have certain privileges in heaven that are not uh, available to every single believer. He's going to 
be allowed to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So apparently there's going to be some inner level of association for mature believers and mature believers only, and no one else is admitted. Revelation 2.11. Now, I'm not going to get bogged down in exegeting each of these passages. I just want to make some simple points, and that is that there is there are those who are, are successful, rewarded, overcoming believers who have special position and privilege in the kingdom and those who don't. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, now this is, we're going to come back and look at this because this is going to blow our minds when we see what John is talking about here. Now, now at first glance, when we look at we, we think second death. Well, second death, that's the lake of fire. Obviously, believers don't end up in the lake of fire, so overcoming here must have something to do with avoiding the lake of fire because he says he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So you say, well, Robbie, what do you mean here? If overcoming is an advanced believer, how can the advanced believer not be hurt by the second death if, by simply faith alone and Christ alone, we avoid eternal condemnation? That's what we're going to come back and answer. But I want to look at these other overcoming passages first. Revelation 2.17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. You see, in the culture of that day, each of these uh, things having a white stone and a new name written on it was part of the culture in each of these different areas where these letters were written. And it has to do with, with a special recognition and reward within that particular culture or that particular system. Verse Revelation 2.26, And he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Notice, that's not something that just goes to believers. That, if this is just salvation, then it's identifying authority over the nations with obedience. And obedience is not the cause of salvation. Salvation is a free gift. This is something that is a result of, uh, of obedience and advancing in the spiritual life. Revelation 3.5 He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. This is dealing with special recognition from Jesus Christ in heaven. Revelation 3.12 He who overcomes I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. This was typical of what went on in, uh, in a Greek culture that if you were victorious in athletic competition or in a military engagement, then your name would be engraved upon a pillar in the temple in the local town. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God, the name of my, the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God, and my new name. And then in Revelation 3.21, He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne, a sign of the fact that we'll be ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ. Now, I know some of you have some questions about some of this, so we're going to stop and take this apart point by point in order to establish the principle. We have to go back and ask the question, what does it mean to be hurt, not to be hurt by the second death in Revelation 
chapter 2, verse 11, we read the passage, He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, there is a lot of technical vocabulary in the Greek in all of these passages. And if you don't understand the technical background of this vocabulary, then you cannot properly interpret this passage. And some of these terms uh, I just came, I just understood the significance of in the last year doing various different studies, and then it all sort of came together for me in a study this last spring. What does it mean not to be hurt by the second death? Well, first of all, we have to recognize what the second death is. It is eternity in the lake of fire. That is clear from Revelation 20, verse 14. The second death is eternity in the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. The first death is physical death. Second death is eternal death. This is the second death, the lake of fire, eternal death, eternal condemnation in the lake of fire is clearly, is clearly the lake of fire. So then, what, in what sense can the, is, is there this, this suggestion in Revelation 2.11 that the one who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death? Does that mean, in some sense, however vague that may be, that the non-overcomer has some sort of loss related to the lake of fire? Interesting question. Point two. So this is the question. If believers, by definition, are delivered from eternal condemnation in the lake of fire, why is there this promise that overcomers will not be harmed by the second death. It makes it seem as if salvation then is based on perseverance. See, this is one of the arguments that the Lordship crowd comes up with, that the only way you know if you're saved is if you persevere. See, our position is that you're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, and you can know right now today with 100% assurance that if you die tonight, you're going to go to heaven. Jesus talked to Martha that way. When he came to, to Mary and Martha's after Lazarus died, he said, he said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Martha, do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I have believed it. Perfect tense. I believed in the past with results that continue today. In other words, I know I'm not self-deceived. I, I'm not guessing. I don't have to wait to see if my works are consistent with my faith to know whether or not I've really, truly, genuinely believed. The Lordship crowd always wants to come along and say, well, they're those who are self-deceived. They think they believe, but they really didn't because their works don't show it. And we completely disagree with that position. And their position was really exemplified in a conference uh, where a nationally known Bible teacher last year was made aware of the fact that James Montgomery Boyce, who was a pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in uh, Philadelphia, who was a uh, pastor for many, many, many years, wrote many numerous books, uh, devout Calvinist, reformed theologian, that Boyce was dying. And so this particular individual, R.C. Sproul is his name, Sproul said at the beginning of his conference, he said, we need to pray. We need to pray that, that uh, Boyce, who is presently dying, that he will persevere to the end so that he'll be saved. What? 
What do you mean persevere to the end so he'll be saved? And every night during that conference, they prayed that Boyce would persevere to the end, that somehow in the last week he wouldn't renounce the faith, that he wouldn't um, uh, do something, say something uh, that would indicate that he really wasn't saved or he never had salvation. And so Boyce died the last day of the conference that night. Uh, Sproul announces his death and says, we can be confident that our brother is in heaven because he persevered to the end. See, that's where lordship goes. That's the fifth point of Calvinism. The P in tulip is perseverance of the saints, that the person who's truly believed will persevere to the end. And they take perseverance as indicative of whether or not you're truly saved. Whereas our position is perseverance belongs to the advancing believer. It doesn't have to do with salvation. It is for the maturing believer. So that's the real issue here, and that is why... Uh, some, there's much debate and much controversy over this whole subject. So the point number two is the question, if believers are by definition delivered from eternal condemnation, why then is there this promise that the overcomer will not be harmed by the second death? That makes it seem as if salvation is based on perseverance if overcoming equals being saved. Third point. The answer is based on understanding the distinction in rewards. Period. The answer is based on understanding the distinction in rewards. Heaven is a gift, but these are talking about rewards which have to do with our obedience and our maturity in the Christian life. To understand that, we have to understand the judgment seat of Christ. Point number four, the judgment seat of Christ is the issue for rewards and is the evaluation judgment for the believer. The judgment seat of Christ is the evaluation judgment for the believer. 2 Corinthians 5.10 states it. For we must all, we, first person plural in context, refers to the Apostle Paul and his audience, and that equals believers. For we believers must all appear. It's not talking about believers and unbelievers. It's not talking about the human race. It's talking about believers. We believers must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done. Bad translation, proso in the Greek, what he has practiced. Not one-time events, not just two or three times, but proso, practiced. And that reminds us that's the same word proso used over in Galatians 5, uh, 18 through 20, talking about the works of the flesh of those who practice these things. Proso will not inherit the kingdom of God. And there we've gone through our study numerous times that inheritance equals equals not that inheritance is not entering into heaven. Inheritance is rewards in heaven. And those who practice those things will not have an inheritance, a possession in the land. To understand inheritance, you've got to understand the Old Testament. To understand Israel going into the land, they had a possession, they had an inheritance, but not everybody who was in the land had an inheritance in the land. Levites did not have an inheritance or possession in the land. They were in the land, but they didn't have a possession. So you can be in heaven without an inheritance. Quick, very quick summary. Let's get the context of 2 Corinthians 5. It starts in verse 6. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith. The believer walks by faith. Faith means faith not by sight. Faith means that the Word of God is more real to us than what we see, what we feel, what we experience. We walk by faith. That means we trust what the Word of God says over and above everything else. 
We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home, that is, face to face with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition. This is our ambition. This is what we should be striving for as believers. This should be our, our priority, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. And this brings us to verse 10, which is the Bema seat. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's why we are pleasing. We will be recompensed for His deeds. See, that's reward. Recompense for deeds. That, salvation is a free gift. This has to do with rewards for deeds. And the word here for the Bema seat is Bema. And this referred to the raised or elevated uh, seat where the magistrate or tribunal in the city or town would sit. And in judicial settings, this was where he rendered uh, judicial decisions and was the seat of the tribunal. So it is a picture of, of judgment. Now this is further illustrated in 1 Corinthians 3. 10 through 16. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 16. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. So Paul is using a picture here, a picture of a construction project where he's erecting some sort of edifice, building a house, whatever it is. The foundation is laid. It's laid only once. That's Jesus Christ. But then it's up to the construction engineer, what he puts on top of the foundation. You and I as believers of the construction engineer, what, what are we building by terms of, in terms of our life? What are we building on top of that foundation? I laid a foundation, and others building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Verse 12. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with, and these are the building materials, we all build with these same building materials, Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. What you produce under the filling of the Holy Spirit by walking by the Spirit is gold, silver, and precious stones. What we produce according to the flesh is uh, wood, hay, and straw. Now, we can't discern which is which in this life. We don't know. Sometimes you can come to church and learn a lot of doctrine. You can teach Sunday school class, do it all in the flesh, and it looks just the same as the person who does it. You can be a nice guy, wonderful natural personality, and everybody thinks you're a godly person and you're just as much a loser as anybody who ever came along and any pervert because you're not walking by the Spirit. It doesn't become evident till the judgment seat of Christ. For each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself, this is not the lake of fire. This is not uh, eternal condemnation. This is just talking, uh, using an analogy that just as you use fire to purify metals, this is fire using to purify the works that we produce. Not the believer. This is talking. What this is a picture. The fire is applied analogously to our works, so that uh, they are evaluated. They are dokimazod, which means evaluated for approval. So the point is not to display what burns up. The point is to display what survives. And what survives is gold, silver, and precious stones. So each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test, that is, dokimazo, evaluate the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he shall receive a reward. See, everything burns up. The gold, silver, precious stones is not going to be destroyed by the fire. It's going to remain. And on that basis, the divine good, the fruit of the Spirit that's there, we're rewarded for.
But, on the other hand, if any man's work is burned up, if it all goes up because it's all wood, hay, and straw, then it was all produced by the flesh, he will suffer loss. That means rewards are taken away. He will suffer loss. He is a failure believer. He is a loser at the judgment seat of Christ. But he doesn't lose salvation. He loses rewards. Notice the distinction. Rewards are for what we do. Salvation is for what Christ did. He himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So this shows that there are distinctions in heaven based on what we do with the spiritual assets that God gives us in this life. Point number five. This is going to be related to inheritance. And let's look very briefly at a passage we have studied in depth in the past, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Often misunderstood, mostly misunderstood, misinterpreted passage because most of the time people want to take the phrase inherit the kingdom as equivalent to entering the kingdom. And there Paul talking to the Corinthians, the carnal, screwed up, pagan, perverted, drunken, Corinthians. They are involved in every kind of sin you can imagine and, and, and many, many sins that most of you can't imagine. I mean, this is not a spiritual, godly congregation. This is a carnal congregation that is living in many ways no differently and in most ways no differently from the perverted pagans all around them in Corinth, which was the good time city of the Roman Empire. It was the, a harbor where people came from all over the world and you name it, you could do it or get it in Corinth, and they were doing it and getting it in Corinth. So the congregation comes out of this perverted pagan background, so Paul says, and he's challenging them in this passage because they're taking one another into court, and he says, on, on the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and that your brethren, even you're, 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 you're treating other believers uh, in, in, in an illicit manner, you're wrong and defrauding them, or do you not know? In other words, aren't you, are you ignorant of this? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And the typical translation is to try to make unrighteous refer to those who don't possess imputed righteousness, but that doesn't work as we will see. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And inheriting the kingdom doesn't mean entering the kingdom. It means having possession and ownership in the kingdom. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Well, look, it says that um, uh, thieves and drunkards and swindlers won't inherit the kingdom of God. So why have a jail ministry? They won't inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, they did that, right? Not to mention, I mean, that's just criminal acts, not to mention the others who are involved in immorality. If inheriting the kingdom means entering into heaven, then why have a jail ministry? They're not going to get into heaven. It just says it right there. But inheriting the kingdom doesn't mean entering the kingdom. Inheriting the kingdom means owning or possessing the kingdom. And then in verse 11, Paul says, And such were some of you. See, the past tense of the verb indicates that some, which is a subset of the whole, that, that some were that way, but they're not that way anymore. In other words, if this whole congregation here represented the Corinthian congregation, Paul is saying, all of you, you all, plural, all of you are, are with the exception of the some, these are the some, the some is a subset of the whole, all of you, refers to this whole crowd that is still living 
according to the carnal pagan concepts of the everyday Corinthian who's not a believer. But some of them are no longer living that way. That's what he's saying. Such were some of you. Some of you have quit living like that. But most of you all, most of y'all, are still living that way. That's the point he's saying. Such were some of you. But you all were washed. See, he's saying some of you were that way, but you all. See, that's the key is understanding that the, the two yous here, or in the, in the New American Standard, you have one, two, three, four yous. They're all plurals. He says some of you all were drunkards, uh, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexual, thieves. Some of you were that way, but all of you were washed. All of you were sanctified. All of you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But see, only some of you have stopped being fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, and That's why he's reaming them out. As he's telling you that, 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 look, only some of you have caught the point here, but most of you are still losers. And so you're not going to inherit the kingdom unless you start learning and applying doctrine. So this is the concept here. And it is a concept of inheritance. Now, there's another little technical word that is used for inheritance in, in the Greek. And I ran across this last year when I was over in Kazakhstan. And just before I left, I got the new uh, Kittles uh, Theological Dictionary of the New Testament on my computer. And so while I was flying over there, 18 hours on the airplane... Uh, I decided to just play around with the new program, see what it could do. And I was going to be teaching on John 13 when I was over there. So I'm just reading through the passage about Jesus washing Peter's feet. And Peter said, Lord, Lord, I don't, I don't want you to wash my feet. And the Lord said, Peter, if you don't let me, I'll, I'll have no, uh, you'll have no part with me. And I thought, well, I wonder what that word is. And so I just double-clicked on it, and I, and I ran through a study in, in Kittle, and it printed out every place that word's mentioned in Kittle. Now, even the index in the hardbound 10-volume set doesn't give you that kind of detail. And so I'm just kind of popping through all the various uh, places where this is used, and I ran across an article that was related to inheritance. And there I learned that meros, this is the word in the Greek, that the word meros, M-E-R-O-S, is a, was a technical term. It means part. It means share. And it also means the inheritance portion. That this was a technical word that was used in wills, in legal testamentary literature in the Roman Empire, to define that inheritance portion which was left to an individual. And it's used that way in the Scripture. It's used that way in Luke chapter 15. It's clearly used that way in Luke 15:11, Talking about the prodigal son, Jesus is giving the parable. He said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me, and he divided his wealth between them. See, when the younger son says, give me the share, he says, give me the meros. Give me the portion. Give me my portion of the inheritance. Now, hold on here. 
because this is where things are going to get really important. In John 13, when Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples, in verse 4 we're told, He rose from supper, laid aside His garments, taking a towel, He girded Himself about, then He poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which He was girded. Now we've seen that this is a, a picture of forgiveness. This is a picture of the necessity of the believer after salvation to be cleansed from sin. And we've gone through the study. We've seen that there are two words here, luao and nipto, that are used. Luao means overall washing, washing from head to toe, and that's analogous to what the priest did in the Old Testament. It's used in the Septuagint of his complete washing when he's installed as a priest. But every time after that, when he goes into the presence of God, he's got to wash his hands and feet at the basin, and that's nipto. So Jesus is niptoing their feet. Why? Because they had already washed luao all the way before they come in, came to the dinner. So he's washing their feet, and it's a sign of cleansing that's necessary for post-salvation sins in the life of the believer. And he says to Simon Peter, he said to him, Lord, and he, so he came to Simon Peter, verse 6, and Jesus said to Peter, I mean, Peter said to the Lord, Lord, do you wash my feet? Are you going to nipto? My feet. And Jesus answered and said, What I do, you don't realize now. You don't understand the full implication of this right now, but I'm, I'm doing a picture here. Oh, so you'll understand it after this. And then, and I left the verse out on the overhead, and then what Jesus does is he says to Peter, If you don't let me do this, you will have no part, no meros, no part in my ministry. You won't have an inheritance in my ministry if you don't let me. And the point that he's illustrating, if you don't let me cleanse you of post-salvation sins. And he's saying very clearly, there's no inheritance if there's no cleansing of sin. Because that's what that is illustrating. Now, having all of that for a background, let's look at one of the significant places that this word is used in Revelation 20. Revelation 20, this is... After Armageddon, Jesus Christ has descended to the earth and established, and there's the judgment that occurs at the end of the tribulation. And then we are introduced to the... Uh, and this is the first resurrection that occurs at the end of the tribulation for those tribulation saints, etc. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Now, in English, we look at that and we say, oh, that just means the person who has a role in the first resurrection. In other words, you get resurrected. You're either at the rapture or you're resurrected as a tribulation saint. Wrong. It's meros. Blessed, and it just got through. If you go back and look at the beginning of Revelation chapter 20, we read, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were complete. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And, verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the thrones here refer to the believers. The only other people on thrones in the, um, 
in the Old Testament are the 24 elders back in Revelation chapter chapter 4. So the first resurrection refers to the first rank or the second rank of resurrection believers. There's three groups of those resurrected by this time. The Lord Jesus Christ is the first fruits. The second rank or column of believers, uh, the second rank of those resurrected is church age believers at the rapture, and the third rank is tribulation uh, martyrs. And uh, so this is talking about the tribulation martyrs and church age believers who are all involved at this point. Now, these are believers on thrones who are judging. Judgment was given to them in verse 4. Now, this is the role of believers. Judgment is given to them, and that is part of their inheritance. That is why, in this summary statement of verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has an inheritance portion of the first resurrection. Why? Because that enables them to be uh, involved in judgment over the angels and over tribulation saints in back in verse 4. Now, let's put this together so we can have an understanding of what we've covered so far. First of all, all believers are raptured. All church-age believers are raptured at the end of the church age because they believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. During the tribulation, while we are in heaven, one group of believers is going to receive reward and another group is going to lose rewards. The group that receives rewards are called overcomers. They have an inheritance and they are going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. They are not going to be hurt by the second death. But the second group that loses rewards does not have an inheritance. It's taken away from them and they are going to suffer loss. How does that happen? Well, let's skip to another verse in Revelation 20, verse 1. I mean, 21, verse 6 and 8. Revelation 21, verses 6 to 8. Jesus is talking here. This is after the millennium. This is in the eternal state. Jesus, then he said, we read the beginning, that's he said to me, that's John writing. Jesus says to him, it is done. All of human history is over with at this point. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. See, that's salvation. We have salvation without cost. And then he says, he who overcomes. See, there's a cost in overcoming, so they have to be two different things. He who overcomes will inherit these things. See, now he's talking about inheritance. Verse 7 sets the contextual category here of inheritance. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, and unbelieving, and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars. Now, where have we seen a list like that before? Galatians 5, 18 to 20, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says here, for all of those who, who, who've been involved in these sins, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, the way this is typically read is their part means their role. 
And so this is the standard interpretation is this is saying that it's standard for unbelievers to be cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, and more persons, etc., etc. And their destiny, their role is in the lake of fire. But the context is inheritance for believers. And it says here that the cowardly, these are failure believers here. This is not talking about unbelievers. This is talking about believers. These are the same category of loser believers that are listed in Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6. The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, their part, what? Their inheritance. See, that's hameros again. Their inheritance, their share will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone. You see, what happens is when you and I appear at the judgment seat of Christ, we're going to have all our works exposed through that judgment fire. We're going to su- some are going to su- suffer loss because of disobedience. They're going to lose rewards. What's going to happen to your reward? It's going to go to hell. It's going to be burned up in the lake of fire. That's what all that that's saying is that you're going to lose that reward and it's going to be all the at the end of time all the undistributed rewards and blessings that were to be given to believers, but they failed. They never uh, succeeded in the Christian life. They never advanced to maturity. All of their rewards are going to be gathered up by God and flushed into the cosmic commode of the eternal judgment. And that's the end of it. And that's where they're gone. And we're going to witness that. And there's going to be sorrow and there's going to be shame. And that's what John talks about in the next chapter when he talks about the fact that there are going to be those who are going to have shame at the judgment seat of Christ. It's because we're going to be embarrassed and ashamed because of our failure to fulfill our potential and to advance to spiritual maturity in the church age. But then Jesus says he's going to wipe away every tear. And there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears for the old things have passed away. And Isaiah tells us we're going to forget it all. And we're going to go into eternity. But don't get the idea that you can just kind of bounce through life now without taking the Christian life seriously as if there are going to be no consequences. Because say, after all, I'm going to die and I'm going to be in heaven. And I've always heard some idiot say, well, I'd rather be... It doesn't matter whether I'm in the slums of heaven or in some mansion as long as I'm there. Well, what you're saying is... I would rather be embarrassed at the judgment seat of Christ than glorify God. And see, this is what Paul exhorts us to in 1 Corinthians 9 and following. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? See, a prize is not a gift. A prize is a reward for excellent behavior. Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath. And this is a stephanos. This is not a diadem, which is a ruling crown. This is a stephanos, which is a reward. That's why the 24, that's why those sitting on the throne in Revelation 20 are considered uh, uh, the church, because in the 24 elders in Revelation 4 have stephanos crowns. And a stephanos crown is a reward crown. They do it to receive a perishable Stephanos, but we an imperishable. We will receive an imperishable Stephanos. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. See, Paul recognized that even he could disqualify himself from his inheritance 
and lose rewards. And so this is what motivates the believer and challenges the believer to make sure that doctrine is the highest priority because one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you that we understand our role, our position, and the fact that we will ultimately be evaluated in terms of our spiritual growth and our spiritual service. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning without faith, without hope, without certainty of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make their salvation both sure and certain. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Scripture says, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. It's not based on morality. It's not based on how good you are, how bad you are. It's not based on church attendance, church membership, or any other human factor. It is based on the complete and finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why it's faith alone. Right now, right where, you can, right where you sit, you can make your salvation certain by simply trusting in Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation. That he died on the cross as a substitute for your sins, was buried, and rose again the third day. Father, we pray for the believers here that they would be challenged by what we have studied today to advance to spiritual maturity that we might be overcomers, having victory in every area in the Christian life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.